All right, welcome in to the Autzen Audibles podcast. Matt Prem, Eric Scopel, Jared Mack on this Monday, middle of the May month, May 15th. Uh, on our previous episode, we kind of went over the defense that Eric, uh, Jared's projecting of the two deep uh, post spring. And today's exercise on the pod is going to be looking at Eric's version of the offensive side. Um, of the two deep and like we did last show eric i guess just was this difficult was there any positions going in and we'll get to each position you know bye bye by group but was there any overarching themes or any arching you know struggles you had forming this group i, I mean quarterback running back tight end all of that was like pretty self-evident i think anybody looking at it probably figures that part out um when you get into receiver and offensive line, I, I figure that's where we'll spend the most most of our conversation. Th- those are where we get into just largely guesswork. Um, you know, it was, it's difficult because of what we saw in the spring game to really parse through what rotations look like on the offensive line, where everybody fits at receiver. Um, we can have some kind of discussions about what to make of all of that because there were certainly people kind of at spots that weren't where I expected, and so I accounted for that in the two deep and and. I don't know if that necessarily is something that will matter at all come fall, but we have limited information. The information we did have said, hey, this person was working there and this person was working here. And so that was that was probably what made the receiver part more difficult, along with, and we'll get to when we get there, they've now added a player and maybe they'll add more that kind of add to the room and, and kind of some of the decisions. So those were the two groups that were hard. And I think the rest of it, as we'll get to, and, and as everybody listening probably knows, like, Everybody's got a feel for what's happening at quarterback. Everybody has a feel for what's happening at running back. I think wide receiver and offensive line for probably everybody listening is the other spots where you're kind of going like, ah, there's some there's some kind of mixing and matching that needs to get figured out right now. Do you want me to run through quarterback? Yeah, yeah. Let's let's go to let's let's just have that segue right right into the quarterback room where this is like the, the most difficult position to project that we've had in years. <laughs> well, I mean, as we talked about several times during the spring, I mean, the first time in a minute, we haven't had like an actual quarterback battle of some kind, like notable that Ty Thompson, I don't think spoke at all during spring. If this were a actual competition, they would have him at least pretend like he was and come up and, and address media for a second, maybe. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, everybody kind of knows where this is at. You have three scholarship guys, Bo's the starter. I think Ty's pretty clearly the number two guy and, and Austin's number three. And I don't think there's, um, much to debate there in terms of the order. Um, uh, you know, if you, if you could maybe try to sell me on Ty had a, a rough spring game and, and Austin's going to have a chance to catch him in the fall. Wouldn't totally disregard that. That could be an outcome. I just also think it was pretty clear who they we're trying to, you know, give a more of an opportunity to where you saw Austin attempt eight passes and you saw tie attempts. I don't have it off the top of my head, but like maybe 30, yeah, 34 passes. So in the spring game. So I think that's pretty telling. And obviously Ty's been here a couple of years physically. He's prepared. Whereas Austin is just arrived and physically still needs some work in terms of development. So I think that's pretty clearly where you're headed this fall. Um, and I know people aren't thrilled with the backup quarterback situation probably shouldn't be based upon everything we've seen at the same time there aren't a lot of schools i think where you're going to go into a situation where it's significantly better where you know you've got a guy who's like a surefire starting caliber quarterback as your backup because guess what those guys hit the portal um as many had expected ty to do so uh that's kind of where you're at i don't think there's any moves you expect them to be made and this is your situation going into fall 
Yeah, there's uh, there's nothing there. It's uh, it's Bo Nix and then everybody else. Uh, in terms of being upset about a backup quarterback situation, it's your backup quarterback. Uh, they're a backup for a reason. Even if they were good enough to start, they're clearly not good enough to start at the school that they're at, uh, which could be Ty Thompson's case down the road. It's cert- it might not be now, but it could be down the road. Um, and I think Ty is an admirable backup. I think he showed you his skill set, his potential, and some of his spring game throws. Uh, some of the throws he's had over the course of his career. Um, but he's just not better than Bo Nix. And Austin Ovisad just isn't better than Ty Thompson. So it's a pretty clear one, two, three. I think this and this and running back, like Eric said, are the are the clearest step charts on the team, I would say. I think it's like by far. And then tight end as well. There's not much more for me to add to this. So I'm going to pose a question. Um, what's our our like our concern level at? of an injury and it derailing the season. Like this is like the position they can't have an injury at. Like yeah, last if, if an injury, any kind of like long-term injury happens, the team's in a really bad place. I mean, injury to anybody starting quarterback is going to derail a season. I right. think like, it's just like a basic premise, Matt. So like, yeah, yeah if, if he goes down, it's, it's tough. And, and I, you know, and, and to the point we we're making earlier, you don't have a backup where you feel I and mean, you haven't you just haven't seen him actually go out and really perform very well against non-FCS competition. I think he had a pretty good what was it a second half in 21 against Stony Brook, maybe when he came in. Um and he had some okay moments there. But like those are kind of the high highs of his career to this point. So you would be very concerned if he was forced to go out there against a Pac 12 school and start and lead your offense to win. That's not to say he can't do it. Because physically, I think he has the tools to be somebody who's very capable. But yeah, absolutely. Like this season's the tenor totally shifts if Knicks goes down, just like the tenor totally shifted last year when when Knicks went down. I know he ended up continuing to play, but um, even his inability to do some of the things and playing at what 75, 80% for a couple of weeks, you saw the impact there. So um, yeah, would be would be huge if if Knicks is unable to play for any extended period of time. Yeah. All right, let's- I mean- I was just going to say what, what Eric said. Uh, we saw it happen last year when Bo got hurt against Washington. It's a, it's a crippling blow. It's a significant impact to any team across the country. And for Oregon, I mean, at least they have a guy in Ty who has potential. At least they have a guy who showcased his potential at points, who has a good arm, uh, has been in the system for a couple of years. Uh, at least that's th- those are some of the positives. But, yeah, I mean, it's like everybody, uh, you know. If somebody goes down who's who's a Heisman candidate, if Washington, if Michael Penix went down, or if Caleb Williams went down, these are these are very difficult things to add. That's why quarterbacks are obviously the most valuable position in all of football. All right, let's shift now to running back. Um, another one, Eric, where yeah. you really struggled with with <laughs> making this step chart. Oh yeah, man, I I was really looking through film here, trying to figure out who was. <laughs> No, I mean, and, and like you basically, again, this was what we expected. And this was really what was exciting about the way the running back room shaped up last year was you had two guys really take over the, you know, the reins, if you will, and both of them have added eligibility. So you, you're going to have this for at least two seasons and Bucky will have maybe a decision to make at the end of this one. But, you know, no, theoretically could be involved in your running room for, for three, three straight seasons as somebody who you're very reliable, uh, you know, so I, I think there's not much more to say here. Oregon has a great one-two with these pair. Um, statistically, they were the best in the Pac-12 last year. Um, PFF, I think, had them in like two of the top eight or nine runners in the Pac-12, if you if you break it down uh, just in terms of their grades. So these are high-end running backs. This is a really strong room. I've already talked about it. This was I did my position rankings come you know post spring and, and I had running back at 
at number two, I believe, on my list. Um, I, I, I think I thought very high on it. I think the questions that we could get into, which aren't too deep related, is kind of what happens after these two is, you know, can Dante Dowdell, you know, work his way into a position where either you expand the, the running back room to, to four, where you've got Jordan James and him and the other two, you know, carrying the ball with regularity, or is it a situation where he could jump Jordan James, or are we going to kind of see a similar rotation to last year? So I think those are the, the bigger questions, if you will, for the room. It's kind of, you know you've got Bucky, you know you've got Noah, and it's just last year they incorporated a third in Jordan who ran, I thought, really well. Uh, does that situation change at all? And I think that's the thing you're kind of maybe looking at most at running back going into the offseason. Yeah, I mean, the the one and two, it's clearly Bucky and then Noah Whittington. Um but to your point, Eric, yeah, that's those are the main questions is who emerges as the third back. Um, last year, clearly, it was Jordan James, specifically in that 14-J package. Uh, I would imagine it would still be him again this season as the third running back. But, you know, Dante Dowdell and Jane Lamar certainly looked the part physically. Uh, Dowdell had a couple good runs during the spring game. Uh, he was, you know, a four-star recruit at a, at a Picayune in Mississippi um, and a, a big time caliber recruit. So it was a huge get for Carlos Lachlan at the time still is. Um, he could be the, the future of the running back room or it could be Lamar or it could be James. I think that it's a very solid five running backs. Um, you know, you think about this time like a year ago, maybe 14, 16 months ago, there were like one or two scholarship running backs on the roster with Byron Cardwell and then uh, other people whose names I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, it's a significant difference. This is a significant upgrade at the running back room. Uh, and I, I mean, I would really love to see Dante Dowdell get a lot of reps because I'm a big fan of his tape, a big fan of like how, how he plays. Um, he reminds me more of Whittington than Bucky, but I think few running backs run like Bucky does. But I think he's a really good player. I think he's got a really bright future at Oregon, but uh, he's going to have to wait a year, at least a year. I wonder where this group could go down, and, and I mean group, I guess I should say duo, Bucky and Noah, um, in terms of tag team groups at Oregon and, you know, in the history of that position group, because I I think they're better than Travis Dye and CJ Verdell collectively. Part of that yeah, is yeah. durability of Verdell not being able to stay healthy. Um, I think Travis Dye was unreal in his, I guess, true normal senior season at Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, but the three previous years, he shared the role with, with Verdell. And I, I think what we got out of Noah uh, in 2022, is very similar or better than what Dye's role was like in a limited capacity. So I, I guess for me, the question isn't more so where does the, the position, you know, line up from a depth chart standpoint, but where can Noah and where can Bucky, you know, place themselves in the history of this position group. Coach Lachlan's talked a lot about, like, he wants to get this position back to where Gary Campbell had it, and I think they are. I think they're there. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the standard he's holding himself to, and that would be, you know, players like LaMichael James and Kenyon Barner being in the depth chart at the same time. Um, that would be Thomas Tyner and Royce Freeman being together. Um, you could throw D'Anthony Thomas in there. Byron Marshall in there. I mean, they've had a long, long line of, of elite dudes. And I guess just for me is where does this group stack? Where can they where can they put themselves in the history of you know running back tandems? Uh, is it going to be the greatest? I don't think so, but they could probably be one of the top two or three, four 
best tandems in, in, in the last 15, 20 years. We're going to need Rob Mosley on here to really run through the history. But I think yeah. Kenyon, Kenyon and uh, LaMichael is clearly number one. Yes. That's the pinnacle. Um, I think – I might be wrong. I think Ontario Smith and Maurice Morris might have both had they a thousand. Were. They, they both the, had a thousand in, the in one year. year. Yep. Yeah, mm. so that would be one. And then um, I also thought of uh, like Garrett and Jemai Jeremiah Johnson in the 2008. I can't remember the years. I'm, I'm so bad yeah. with years now. 06 maybe. It was one it's of 2008. Okay. It's 2008 because Garrett got suspended in 2009. In, in nine, right. So, and, and I think LeGarrette was just short of 1,000 or they both got to 1,000 that year. So those are just off the top of my head years that stand out. Um, but I, I think it's they're very capable of getting into that second tier. I don't – I think it would take a ton to get to the LaMichael Canyon thing just because, yes, like, LaMichael's – They I don't run it. Yeah, and they also don't run it enough. Right? Yeah, like, I, it's, it's so different, <laughs> like, just the yeah. plate style. Like – I think Bucky and Noah have the talent to be in that top tier, but sure. they don't run the ball. They don't run it nearly as much as they used to. And, I mean, Bucky only got 1,000 yards because of his bowl game performance, which was right. an incredible performance. Um, Noah, I don't remember what the number was, but I think he was around that 700-yard plateau. Um, but, I mean, they both averaged like over six yards a carry. They were both tremendous. They're both extremely athletic. They're both extremely gifted and talented at the running back position. They, they just don't run it. I mean, Christ, I'd love to see what, what they'd look like in a Mario Cristobal offense because, yeah. my goodness, they they both get a million reps a season and they would have 1,500 yards each because I think each of them are are more individually talented than than Dye and Verdell were. Um, I think Dye was the more talented over Verdell. But I think like someone like Bucky Irving can do exactly what those two guys did very well at and into one human and so I think that that puts them at a special level. But I, I mean, historically, like record book wise, they'll probably never get up to that top tier level. Like I don't think it'll ever yeah. come close, unfortunately. But Oregon lore, they'll be up there. Yeah, I was just so. But uh, Noah had seven hundred and seventy nine. What we should have done if we were gonna. I, this is a spur of the moment conversation, but it would be kind of fun maybe to have this at some point going into the season of actually looking at the best statistical duos sure. and like. What would they need to get to to accomplish a? I know it would just be based on stats alone, but accomplish to be a top three or top four, you know, pairing season. Because, like we said, there have been some pretty special ones. And um, any year where like Lamichael or Royce Freeman were here, by the way, is going to be inflated because those guys ran for like eighteen hundred yards right. on their own, which is like what those yeah. two guys ran for last year. So, um, yeah, so Jared makes a good point. The the running just the way the offense is constructed makes it difficult to hit some of these statistical benchmarks probably of like i don't i think bucky's maybe i don't this may be outlandish the most gifted actual runner i've seen at oregon in my lifetime like and that might sound really hyperbolic no, i don't people, think that's outlandish I, think that's, I mean watch those highlights it's ridiculous so <laughs> it's but I, I also think like i would be really stunned if he ran for like 1500 yards this year just seeing what he kind of the offense looked like last year and then also not knowing if Stein is going to let, I mean, based on the spring game, and we're now devoting more time to running back than we probably needed to, so we can jump on here in a second. But based on the spring game, it looks like they're going to throw it a million times per game. So should we, yeah. I know that doesn't necessarily mean too much, but um, but yeah, well, that, that's another part of, if we're going to talk about the statistical, like getting to that top tier, they just probably, it seems like to Jared's point, they might not have the opportunity to get there just based upon rep count alone. Um. I don't think I, I don't think your Bucky being the most talented back is outlandish, but I would still take LaMichael. I mean, he won I, the double walker. Too. Um, I would too. Bucky has the potential though to you know to get to that level. 
if he gets like Jared said, the the point that the opportunities to carry the rock that many times like Lamichael did. Um, but your point your point also still stands, Eric. We need to move on to the next position group. So we're gonna take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we're gonna dive into the position groups where there's some uncertainty or a little bit of uncertainty uh, on the offensive side oh. of the football. All right, welcome back to the Ots and Audibles podcast. Um, two positions in, a couple more to go here. Let's start with the tight ends because I think this one is probably the the most clear of, of the three remaining groups here. Um, how would how would you look at this? How how did we do this? Well, I mean, Terrence Ferguson is the de facto starter. I know he. It's interesting because I think a lot of people think he started a lot more games than he started last year, and I still think he started about half. But at the same time, I think it's pretty clear coming into this year with the two players he was competing with for starting reps last year, transferring, that he's he's going to be the guy. And I think if he's not the guy, that's either a really bad thing or a really good thing. And if it's a really good thing, it's because one of these guys we weren't expecting to ends up being a much bigger contributor than they anticipated. And if it's a bad thing, it's, well, it's because that means they didn't have a lot of talent at tight end to begin with. So... Um, but I think Ferguson's clearly your number one guy. I have Patrick Herbert as the two just because I have yet to see anything from Sadiq that leads me to believe he's like absolutely ahead of Patrick Herbert. Um, Casey Kelly is a name that to me that's a depth piece. They just added um, Caden Ludwick, a walk on, preferred walk on from Colorado, who is a pretty accomplished prep player at Oregon, but primarily on the defensive side of the football. So don't know if I expect him to be a massive, massive contributor, but. They do have a little more bodies than they did to start spring. That's a real positive thing. I think you'd feel better about the depth here. But I guess the question I will have, and maybe I just posed to Jared, obviously I think we all think Ferguson's the number one. But this group, I think it's going to take a lot from these guys collectively behind him to to maybe get them to the the point where they were last year. And I'm not saying last year's tight end group was incredible because based upon all metrics, they they were solid but not great. Um, but I mean, I, I think you still have, you have bodies now and I know Jared, you're, you're, you've been championing the adding a transfer portal tight end and hitting the portal. You got your wishes kind of, where's your assessment for where is the group at right now? I mean, I think it's still extremely top heavy. Um, again, you know, Terrence Ferguson who was hurt during spring camp isn't the best start to the season, but again, you're relying on. Um, you know, Casey Kelly at Ole Miss transfer who was who got hurt at his time during Ole Miss, a former preferred walk on um, Patrick Herbert, who's a guy who's been injury at an injury risk during his entire Oregon career, who played limited snaps last season. Ludwig is a converted defensive end from Colorado, who's a preferred walk on after receiving a scholarship from Colorado. So we'll see what he does. I have no idea what that could look like. And then Kenyon Sadiq says six foot two, six foot three, two hundred twenty pound true freshman tight end. Um, I think that it's extremely top heavy. I think what Oregon is going to miss the most about last year's group is their ability to block with Maliki Matavao and Cam McCormick. You go back and watch all those Bucky Irving runs, Eric, like we were talking about earlier. Go watch somebody on the on the tight end line. Go block somebody because it's usually not Terrence Ferguson. Uh, the, go ahead. Can I, can I point to one play, Jared? Just the, the is it the, the UNC Bucky Irving champ, touchdown run? Yeah, Cam McCormick clears two guys. Yeah, he that's, takes that's out two guys in one block. Yeah, because that's a real size tight end. That's like a six foot five, mm-hmm. 250, 260 pound tight end, which which was you know Cam McCormick and Maliki Matavau. Uh, They don't have that on the roster. 
I would imagine that Casey Kelly gets a bit more playing time than we all expect because they're, they're going to need another blocker. And from the spring game, from the formations that they run, it's a lot of 12 still. It's going to be just like Kenny Dillingham. There's going to be a lot of 12. It's going to really help that Ter- Terrence Ferguson is a tremendous pass catcher as a tight end. Um, I just don't think that the talent is, is what it was last season, clearly. Uh, and I'm wondering how they're going to work around that. But maybe Kenyon Sadiq just becomes a tremendous pass catcher. And it's just such a mismatch or a, a, a defensive nightmare for opposing teams that this tight end room is, is just fine. And it does better than last season. But I wouldn't count on it. Yeah, I I don't think there's going to be much movement here. So I agree with um, Jared's depth chart, or Eric's depth chart, excuse me. Um, I also wonder if we're going to see, like if this was the plan kind of all along, like they're not going to have as many inline blocking tight ends on the roster. I think they wanted to have one, maybe two if they could get it, which they now have. Um, but I, I just, I, I wonder if basically, I guess my question is, do they rotate as often as they did last year? Because all four guys played in all the games. Patrick Herbert was the fewest on the snap count, I believe. Yeah. Um, but he was still a regular guy. Still got into the game quite often. Um, or I should say frequently he got into every single game. So I I wonder if they just shortened the, the rotation down. And it, it, from being four guys to – maybe two and a half or, or three guys. They've got their inline blocker and, and Patrick Herbert. They've got their star receiver receiving tight end and Ferguson. And then Kenyon Sadiq is kind of like the wild card here. And then, and, you know, Kelly's kind of the, the backup for Herbert if he can't be the, the inline blocker that they need him to be. You know, I think the, the reality is, is if we're just taking a real appraisal of things, if Ferguson is as good as we think he could be, these concerns probably aren't as significant yes. as we're making them out to be at the same time. I think they're significant. I mean, I think they're legitimate ones. And I mean, that's the point I, you know, we don't have full clarity of exactly what this Will Stein offense wants to do with tight ends, but to Jared's point in the spring game, at least it looked like they try to use two. So if you're going to use mm-hmm. two with any frequency, you want to have at least three or four that are, are capable. And, and, and it could be that they do just eliminate a person from there. I, mean, I think, I was looking at this a couple of days ago, and it was that there were 150 or 200 snaps that Herbert played as the as the low man on the four man totem pole from those four guys. So that's a decent sized role. If you were just to take those snaps and redisperse that over, if you were to say settle on a, I don't know, I think you're going to end up playing. You don't bring in Kelly not to play him. So I think you are going to play all four guys. Yeah, you're I, gonna I, play I, all I was. Four. I was trying to think of a way to condense it in my head. It just mm-hmm. doesn't really make sense. So I think you're going to play four, and I think you probably will see it play out similar to how it did last year in terms of the dispersal of, of, of those guys all playing 150 or more snaps. I think that's probably not unreasonable. And then it comes down to a matter of what matchups allow you to play who, when, because I do think because of the, this is like very distinct, different body types and skill sets at tight end in a way that like is unique from where we were, you know, a handful of years ago where it was, it did feel like the majority of these guys were going to be all about the exact same time, like 80% of tight ends. It felt like we're going to be the exact same type of body type tight end, or that was the goal. And now you're seeing a little bit of a delineation where, and I don't know if it was all Brock Bowers or just that general idea. You see it in the NFL, obviously with Travis Kelsey of basically that being a pseudo wide receiver, but of just finding different body types and, and kind of building an offense around him. I think you can get really excited by the upside of what Ferguson can look like in in, in, a, in a role of what Sadiq can look like 
you know, uh, on the outside as well. And then what do you have from the box as a blocker from, from the other two guys is, is kind of the question because to Jared's point, I do think that's the, that's the concern. And Herbert was a good, a good quality blocker last year. You hope that continues. You hope Kelly's the same because that would be the one thing that I would be concerned about is you, you lost, I think pretty clearly your, your two best blockers in the off season and you're hoping to replace them with, with guys that are at least comparable. And maybe, and maybe, by the way, maybe Ludwig is just really physical. I mean, this is just tossing his name out yeah. here. He's a former defensive right. player, and maybe he's your Hunter Campmore where it's like, okay, we don't really want right. to throw you the football, but just go out there and mash a guy for six to eight downs a game, and we're happy. Yeah, and that's, that's all they could ask him to do. I wouldn't be surprised. But, uh, Matt, thank you for bringing up the tight end depth chart because that's exactly <laughs> what it's going to be, and they're going to play all four guys. I don't. There's no way to consolidate those snaps. They're going to need all four of those tight ends, which was why I was banging on the door for bringing in all four, you know, four or five scholarship tight ends, which they sort of did this this off season. But it's because they're going to play them uh, again. Will Stein, if you go back and watch his UCSA film, it's again very similar offense to what Kenny Dillingham ran last year, where it was a lot of twelve personnel. Sometimes shoot, it was 14 personnel. I know it was Josh Connolly on the field instead of another tight end, but it's a lot of 12. They're going to use those mismatches to their favor. They're going to try to get, uh, they're going to try to set the edge on running plays. This is why they were such an effective offense last year. And to be that again, they're going to need all the tight ends to play. So I think Casey Kelly's going to play more than we all expect. I think Kenyon Sadiq's going to be thrown into the fire and kind of just a just a trial by trial by air process there earlier the season. Um, because that's the one kid where I feel like if he doesn't get up to what college football is and doesn't start to perform at a reasonably well level, that if they are going to consolidate minutes, it might be from Kenyon Sadiq just to see his physicality on the field and if he can translate. All right, now let's go to the receiver room where even before we record this podcast, they've added a new name um into the mix here so i guess let's let's talk gary bryant first and then we'll transition into how he fits into this position group because it's now changed um over the weekend usc transfer gary bryant announced his commitment to greg Bagans of 24 7 sports that he was going to transfer and enroll at oregon um this is something that we've talked a lot about on the podcast uh i think the biggest question was like hey they clearly see something in that slot position or, you know, the, re- you know, the, re- the return game or just the overall re- receiver room that they felt like even with some proven guys with some established guys, some high profile recruits coming in, they wanted more talent. They've rate, they've raised the bar here a little bit and Gary Bryant will now join a group that all of a sudden it was just Chris Hudson in the slot essentially. And now they've, they've got three or four guys. And yeah. Hudson can play elsewhere too. Yeah, and that's what makes when we get to my depth chart in a second. I do have two. I've got one pre-Gary Bryant, one post-Gary Bryant that I updated last night, and it's becoming even more difficult to figure out how this works. This is going to be the position group offensively. I think that is the hardest, but we'll talk about that in a second. No, I think to, to the Gary Bryant part, um, some kind of baseline stuff. Top fifty recruit out of high school. This was somebody who was really highly regarded as a prep out of uh, Los Angeles. Um, really has one year of productivity. At 2021, he had about 500 and I think it was like 75 yards receiving and seven touchdowns. 2020, barely played. 2022, played a couple of games, chose to redshirt. I think everybody assumes 
because he was going to transfer kind of the Byron Cardwell equivalent almost. Um, I know there was some injury stuff in there mixed in as well, but this is, this is somebody who you're looking at 2021 going, he was a really, really productive player that year. That was also, we have to note a really weird year for USC. Um, that was the year where Drake London had like all the receiving guards and then got hurt and then needed to someone else to throw the ball to a million times, despite winning like four games, they were extremely prolific throwing. And so you look at it, like, I think, I think over 60% of his receptions, yards and touchdowns came in the last four games when it the kind of seized part of it. And they were just like, we got to throw the ball to somebody. I'm not trying to diminish what he did, but like that was a very weird year for USC. And that's kind of the timeline where he had all of his production. He had some really big games. He had like, I think 160 yards and a touchdown against UCLA. He had, couple touchdowns against, I want to say Arizona or Colorado. I was looking at this couple yesterday. Um, so, you know, somebody who, who was very productive for a spell at USC, but you're kind of just looking at that four game stretch and that 21 season as you're in terms of the college production part, but you can get pretty darn excited by it. And I think if you go watch how he kind of moves and way he operates, you can see why this is somebody that was a take. You can see why this was somebody who was a top 50 recruit and somebody that, I'm now predicting, we'll get to my depth chart in a second, will be a really big part of this receiver room. So I, mean, I think this is a significant add. It's, again, if you kind of want to get into the, the the nitty-gritty of it, there's kind of maybe a little bit of risk because it is just a one-year sample size, but I think the reward's pretty clear. And again, I, I tend to, and maybe I do this too much, I lean on the recruiting rankings for a lot of these guys when they hit the portal. And you go, okay, the top 50 former recruit, that means he was a notch below a five-star that's a, that's a guy who there was a lot of excitement for coming out. And I think there should be still excitement now that he's arrived at Oregon. Certainly should still be excitement. Um, Eric, you want to just jump into your depth chart so we can kind of talk about what he, what it'll, what it'll look like with the team. Love to love to let me just, uh, do you want me to do both or should I just do the only, just the Gary Bryant one? Let's do only Bryant. Okay. So with Brian in here, I've now, I'm, I'm now utilizing the ore machine to the point where I think Mario Cristobal would be proud. Um, at X, I have Troy as the clear-cut starter. And then behind him, I have Gary Bryant or Chris Hudson. I'm just trying to figure out where those guys fit. Um, Hudson was working at X a lot in the spring game. I, Gary, I looked based on the stats, I, I think 370 snaps in the slot, 230 about outside looked like. So mm -hmm. he's got a little bit of experience there. So I have him slotted there. Z, I still have Treshawn Holden as the, as the top guy. I have Justice Lowe as the number two. You can convince me Jurion Dickey should be there. That's fine. I just haven't seen him do anything at Oregon yet. So sight unseen, it's hard for me to throw a guy in there. Uh, and in the slot, I have three ors. I want Tez, Chris Hudson, Gary Bryant, or, or, or. Uh, to be honest. Hello, I, Mario Cristobal. Yeah, I was just going to say, to be honest, I don't feel great about it because I <laughs> used uh, three ors here. And I as a rule, I try to avoid it. But this is, I think, kind of challenging in terms of just figuring out how all of this fits and matches. Um, another part here is that Trey Sean Holden was in the slot in the spring game. I don't know how much we want to make out of that. And Jared had, I think, a reasonable uh, kind of response and retort to that, which was his other receiver on the field at that time was Justice Lowe, who was a Z receiver himself. And maybe it made more sense to have Trayshawn work somewhere else. I also thought, and I talked to somebody who uh, I respect their opinion a great deal, that um, they really liked the way that looked uh, of just a bigger body in the slot. So I could see that being a place they go to this year. But my point really is like, I think you look at this and you go, Troy's clearly your ex. And then there's like four guys that are out there that could easily be his backup at X or a starter at one of the other two positions. And 
So I, I don't know, Jared, do you find it to be any more clear cut than this? Or did you have any disagreements or where are you at with kind of where everything stands at receiver? No, Kyler Casper. I just, Kyler was the last one to, to miss the cut. And it was only because he was working at X at previous previously. And I did, wanted to make room for Gary and Chris there. But so you have, you have Tez Johnson as a backup X. I have no, I have Gary Bryant and Chris Hudson as the backup X. Okay. I'm going to send over you. I'll send it over to you. Yeah. I was looking, cause I was looking at your, um, your post post spring game one, which I was trying to, I was trying to in and out all the things you have. You have Kyler here as an X in your post spring game though. Yeah, I know, but I wanted to figure out how to get Gary in there. Cause I wasn't sure exactly where it fit. This is where it gets complicated. Well, right. Yeah. No, I think to me, I think, I think Gary Casper Bryan plays is, ahead of the low and he just gets on the field. I agree. Put the best player available. Yeah. Cause I, I think Gary Bryan is a true slot guy. And I think that Tez has that positional flexibility, as does Chris Hudson. But my, I think another point from the spring game with Chris Hudson is that he was he wasn't really playing slot. It was uh, he was playing X or Z outside of he, he Tez Johnson. X. Yeah, but that might be because of the personnel issue, as it was on the Green team as well. Because you know Chris Hudson has at least been in the system and has played X a lot in his career, while Tez Johnson has been primarily just a slot guy. So. That could just be another positional thing in the in the spring game, but I don't I don't really know what to make of that either. I think that there's a load of options here. And I think that's wonderful for Oregon because uh, for a long time it didn't really seem like there'd be a lot of options, especially when you consider how many guys entered the transfer portal or uh, went to the NFL and just graduated. Um, because it looked like for a while it was just going to be the Troy Franklin and Chris Hudson show, which and maybe an appearance by Jurion Dickey as a true freshman, which. On paper, sounded okay, but now you have a lot of depth. You know, Gary Bryant, Tez Johnson, Treshawn Holden, those guys are all starters at a former school, uh, two power five level. Tez Johnson was a, just an absolute baller at Troy. Uh, they're all very talented. I really like the Gary Bryant addition. I think that just kind of firms up uh, any injury problems. You got another guy there. Uh, you don't have to go to the Justice Lower, Kyler Casper level, even though I both I like both players, and I think that Casper could be a really good player. Um, you now have a proven guy as a potential, like, hey, we need you to step up and play a lot of minutes. It's like, okay, cool. And you have Gary Bryant or Chris Hudson, whoever's on the bench at that point, to step in there and play a lot of minutes, which is a luxury. That's what it's all about, too, is having good overall depth and having depth pieces that you know that you, you can be confident that they're going to play um, when their number is called upon. So I think it's good. I think for a depth chart purpose, I think it's tough because we still don't know you know, Gary Bryant just committed a handful of days ago. We don't know where the heck he's going to be playing, and we won't be able to find out until August, first week of August probably. Um, it's going to be difficult. But I, me personally, I look at him as more of a slot guy. But Oregon has three of those guys now with Bryant. So I'm not sure where they're going to put him. But uh, X, Z, sure. He has the experience playing on the outside, and he's a bigger body than Hudson. So – Maybe that's the plan with him, or maybe they have another plan, and uh, we'll just find out in a couple of days or something. <laughs> just a couple. Tomorrow, every Wednesday. A couple of days. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I like this group now. Um, it's a good thing that for this exercise, Eric had a really hard time figuring out where to put dudes. I, I view it as because that means you've got a lot of talent, and um, I, I think you your top group of Franklin Hudson, Tez, Treshawn Holden and Gary Bryant jr. Is really good. And 
this basically gives you a, a an opportunity for Jurion Dickey, the five-star freshman receiver who wasn't here for spring ball. You should note that. It's pretty notable. Um, if he is someone that has to play, it means he's really good. But there, but there's not going to be this pressure on him, like there was Troy, um, like there was for some other guys at other positions and other sports to show up and have to be the guy and and week in week out be the dude. And I, I think receiver is probably the easiest position on the offensive side of the football to show up and just play um, and make an impact. But. <laughs> it just alleviates a lot of the pressure that you you originally thought when when he signed with Oregon that Jerion Dickey had to be a guy had to be a big piece I and mean, even to an extent Ashton Cozart too you know he's not on this depth chart either um so i think Oregon's got some options i think if Justice Lowe or if Kyle Casper can fend off one of those freshmen you know it's probably a good thing because those guys have improved then um you know they've gotten better I think this position group up in February looked very thin, and now all of a sudden uh, we got options. There's there's a lot of options for this position group. Yeah, just my last couple of thoughts here. If Dickey is as advertised, that makes you've got six really good receivers, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah if you add him to the five that Matt addressed earlier, um, and that means that you may not have much opportunity for Kyler Casper, Justice Lowe, Ashton Kozar, Josh Delgado, whose name we haven't mentioned, is an older veteran guy who's who's hurt right now. Um, those guys might just not have much opportunity as we, you know, as you know, like even last year's offense where, where they tried to play a lot of guys, they didn't really need six scholarship receivers to have great years. They really only used four or five for the most part all year. So they're fine from a depth perspective, in my opinion. And if you do deal with knock on wood an injury or two, I think you feel pretty good because the other point I'll make is just like, because it's so hard to pinpoint where these guys fit. I think that's a very good thing because most of these guys have history playing slot and outside and, you know you've got Troy at one spot, and so it's just about mixing and matching with the rest of the group. And it's not going to be a very long defense, but the only thing I would say on Justice Lowe was that was purely I had Casper and Lowe kind of on the same tier as players, and one played Z, one played X. I I knew Chris was working at X in the spring game, so that's why I, I, I went with removing Casper at X and keeping Lowe there. Not a, not a very strong one. The other point I'll make, and this would be a quick thought, is just – and I don't think it would matter a ton, but it would impact things. Just if Justice Lowe actually caught that touchdown pass, I know it's so silly, but just yeah. think about the conversations we have after a spring game because it's the only opportunity in so long to watch these guys play. If we were like, well, Justice Lowe did have you know 58 yards and a touchdown in the spring game, you would have a little bit more ammunition to be like, yeah, he should be in the two deep, whereas very, 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 very close to catching the football. Very, very close balls brought out at the last time, and now it's like, yeah, he's, 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 he's not in there. It's not He's uh -oh. not going to be one of the guys, so – um that just Breaking speaks to oh dylan rayola no nashad strother to oregon dun, oh dun, dun. sorry to interrupt uh, so eric he, he touched on uh with your defense your offensive too deep yeah uh, this is fun live podcasting we've got to uh pivot here do we want to hit the, the uh the offensive line yeah let's go to the offensive line um, way we can include him in this conversation, I guess. Nassad Strother joins the group here. Uh, he's a transfer from Eastern Carolina. We had him on the target list uh, of EFP story about a week and a half ago or so of just the names to know once the portal closed. He was one of them. Um, this is another interior offensive lineman that's going to come to Oregon. They've added a bunch this offseason. 
Yeah, no, I, you know, it, he was left guard. Um, that happens to be the position where there's the most, I would say, uncertainty at the moment. And I know we can take a lot of things we saw in the spring with a grain of salt. And then again, the fact that Angelau and Harper, two guys who we had kind of penciled in at the left side there, they didn't play in the spring game. So it's kind of hard to get a sense of where that stands, but they've got, they've got guys now on the interior. Like they've got players with a lot of players with starting experience. Steven Jones, who is right now set as your, your starting right guard has like 20 plus starts at Oregon. Uh, Marcus Harper, who was a fill in last year, left side at guard for Jones and they moved walk around. That's why he was a left side, not right. Started like 10 games last year. And then you brought in Angelau, who's got a couple dozen starts. You brought in Strother now, who's got, I think, close to that number. I'm trying to look through here. Uh, yeah, about about 20-something starts to his 17 career. starts. So that's that's the guy who's who's played a lot as well. So what you're looking at here is an offensive line. I know it kind of interrupted my too deep, but uh, you're looking at a spot here where you've got a lot of options at, at guard. Um, and now you kind of wonder who the odd men – now it's going to be odd men out is because before it, it, to me, it felt like there was a clear cut top six guys and you can only start five. Well, if Strouder, if you bring him in thinking he has a chance to start, now you've got seven and you can only start five. So um, we should note Strouder does have an extra year after this year. So it's possible that he doesn't need to play and start immediately. And he's a, is a, is a guy that I really like and wanted to acquire now for future seasons, but Certainly a name to know. And um, do you want me to? Do you guys have any more thoughts on him that you wanted to share, or should I just it, run through my? It's actually team? more than twenty. It's actually more than twenty. Um, he started last year too, right? It was the seventeen yes. plus the whatever he started in twenty two. Yeah, I think it's like twenty five. Yeah. Um, he didn't start every game, but he, he played a lot. He was Eastern Carolina's highest rated offensive lineman in the PFF. Um, this was, I, I think. Ability in the interior is just not not there. Um, whether that's Junior Engel out, whether that's Marcus Harper, whether that's Stephen Jones, whether that's Jackson Powers Johnson. Um, three of those four, everyone but Harper, to my knowledge, has had some kind of injury during this season um, that's limited them, whether it's here or at another school. So I I, I think this is a move to to shore up some durability concerns continue to raise the bar from talent, from a talent perspective. Um, and like you said, Eric, it's a guy that's going to have multiple years of eligibility um, at Oregon when, when he shows up. He redshirted during the 2019 season, and then the 2020 year doesn't count. Uh, so 2021 was his redshirt freshman season. 2022 is his redshirt sophomore season. So he'll have two years of eligibility um, to play at Oregon, which – I think is why you make this move. Um, yep. He's out quickly, but he's also got one or two years with you. Um, if this was a, a guy that's a three or a four year transfer, I, it probably doesn't make a lot of sense, but he's experienced. And if he's really, really good, he could potentially be gone after this season. Uh, or he could come back for one final push uh, and, and give you, you know, one more senior year uh, of college football. Yeah, no, I, I think that's the important part here because you are looking at maybe a two-year window rather than a one. Uh, if it's just a one-year window, that's where you kind of go, wow, are they – something came up with Angelau or Harper and their physical stuff that is just not up to par. That would be the question I would have if this was a one-year fill-in because 
here's how I have the depth chart right now. Um, I'll just run through that real quick, and then we can kind of chat about it and then this edition and, and how it fits. But on the left side at left tackle, I have Josh Connerly backed up by Feope. On the left guard, I had Junior Angelau and Marcus Harper. Center, I had JPJ and Marcus Harper. Right guard, I had Stephen Jones and Kovico Rogers. And right tackle, I had a Johnny Cornelius and George Silva. Um, so as you can see, that left guard spot, I had Angelau and, and Harper kind of locked in there. Neither guy was available in the spring game. And we should note one thing here that I think is probably kind of important is, do you, I just remember Dan being, he was asked of like where they needed to work. And one of the things he'd mentioned was figuring out the offensive line a little bit. I, I think they probably came away from that spring game. I know we obviously hadn't looked at film, but maybe a sense coming out of spring and the game, but also the practices before it was, we need to find another offensive lineman. We're not yeah. as good as we thought we were at some of these spots. And Strother was a best available prospect that kind of fits. So um, I will be very curious to see how this plays out. This certainly adds another element here of now you've got Angelau, you've got Harper, you've got Strother, you've got JPJ as kind of these four guys that are in the center left guard kind of competition. You've got to at least be aware of Stephen Jones's name as somebody of like, shoot, maybe one of the guys who we think is left guard is, is not going to start and going to get pushed into a right guard competition with Stephen Jones, or maybe Stephen Jones is going to get pushed out to left or right tackle. I don't know, but like there could be some musical chairs here based upon Strother's edition and all this plays out. So, um, like receiver, this was not an easy one to to try to project. There was just there's just too many pieces that we are kind of uncertain on, and it was too bad in the spring game we didn't get at least see Harper or Angle out play because I was curious to see how how both would look. How much Eric, do you I think kinda... this? Sorry, yeah. I was gonna. I, how much do you think this commitment of Strother is um, maybe telling on on maybe what Marcus Harper's injury is because he was dinged up towards the end of spring camp, yeah, and then just you, you know how. How they feel about Angelau coming back from injury as well? Yeah, I, I was. I think that's that would be something to consider for sure, right? Is like if you thought you were set at left guard, you might not make this move. And if you think both of the guys you had penciled in there are dealing with injury, and I know Angelau looked like based upon what we saw was making progress. Maybe that progress was overstated, right? Like we never really saw him go through full contact stuff. Maybe he was just out there kind of moving and going through the motions and it was just, ah, maybe, maybe it's not quite there. But the Harper one is the one that you do have to acknowledge is, is a little bit concerning um, for the long term. And maybe he's not going to be available this fall. I don't know that to be the case. But if that is the case, this move makes a lot more sense of, you know, it, 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 it feels like you're crowded at left guard. It feels like you've got a lot of guys if a couple of those guys aren't going to be able to be available because of health, this move makes a ton more sense. I think this move makes sense at face value in part because to the point we've made already, there's short-term value. And then I think there's clearly left long-term value because Stephen Jones is a, is, he's done after this year. So that opens up a guard spot for next year and junior angle it's the same thing. So two of your top guards in theory are gone. Strother could come back the next year with a pretty much a lock for a starting job. If, if, if it kind of all plays out that way. I think, my rebuttal to that, and this, I'm not trying to disagree with you. I'm just trying to give maybe the other side of the coin here, or maybe sure. a different perspective, is why would Strother pick Oregon if he didn't think true. he would he would play year one? So I, I think Oregon has told him there's something there that we just don't know about that Strother felt comfortable where – I mean, maybe he is one of the greatest players from a team – 
team perspective of, hey, I'm, I'm willing to wait one year to get one year at Oregon instead of going and getting two years at another Power 5 school that's going to compete for a conference championship somewhere else. Um, but I, I got to think Strouder felt comfortable with his opportunity to win a, a, a job or to play a lot as a guy off the bench uh, in year one for Oregon in 2023 because there's something going on with the offensive line. We don't, I mean, it, 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 I, I think I just have a hard time seeing someone miss all of spring ball and then say, I want to go, I have an opportunity to play for a bunch of power, you know, power five schools. I can compete for a league title and I'm just going to sit for a year and play one when I have two years of eligibility left. Right. And I don't think the pitch ever was, you have no chance of playing, but if, sure, he, if, he, didn't, if he didn't win a job in theory, he could fill in. And I guess, um, just to wrap this up and we're kind of, this wasn't something we wanted to address, but scholarship number, where's Oregon at right now? And I also know we can share Greg Biggins put in a crystal ball for a transfer portal player earlier today. So we might be getting close to full. Yeah, that was actually, the scholarship chart was actually going to be on my docket of stories to write for today, not to peel the layers back for what we're, <laughs> what we're doing for work. Uh, but that puts Oregon at 84. Um, that would mean Oregon has one available scholarship left uh, with um, Strother committing to the Ducks and Gary Bryant also committing to the Ducks. Um, I'd be curious to, to, to see if we haven't had a guy not get into school in a while. Um, if we haven't had, maybe there's like a, a retirement that we don't know about that could happen. Um Cause there's some big names still on the board that Oregon's looking at and you know, they've taken a receiver. They've taken an offensive lineman. Um, they look good for a cornerback. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious what their, their numbers are looking like. What oh, did we lost your Matt last half, My back? half of your back, half of your last sentence. We lost you. I think oh, I'm just okay. Well, I'm back. Um, <laughs> I, I just think that that I'm curious where they go because they've got one left, but maybe they, you know, they've got some big names still on the board. Maybe they know someone's not getting into school. Maybe they know that someone's probably going to have to medically retire or something, and you know, another scholarship opens up because there's a lot of big names left, and you know, they've made some interesting choices: a receiver, an offensive lineman, um, and you know. They haven't added another tight end. Like, I guess they did add a, a walk-on tight end, um, but they've got some holes at other spots too they could fill. Do we want to share the name that Greg Biggins used for the crystal ball? I haven't sure. said it. Uh, Colorado corner Nico Reed was the player that received the crystal ball to Oregon today. That um, would make back-to-back years. Oregon took like Colorado's best corner from the previous year because obviously Christian Gonzalez. Um, relationship with Demetrius Martin being the obvious sort of through line here. This is, a, this is a pretty good player last year at Colorado, which is obviously not a great program, but it's interesting if that's where they end up going to, just to Matt's point earlier with the scholarship situation, because we talked about corner. It's There are no clear superstar players there that got a lot of depth. And they have a lot of numbers. So adding another, you figure you make that move thinking this guy is a a big time contributor. Like I don't see you adding a depth corner right now. You're not just throwing it out here to be like, hey, in two years, this guy could be great. I think you're making the move to go, we need to get better. And this guy couldn't get better. And obviously Demetrius has or Demetrius has experience working with with him at Colorado. So 
there's there's some sort of trust and some sort of sense that he can be a big contributor. Because I don't think you add this just to be like, yeah, he can be our fourth guy. Well, this I agree, Eric, to start. But this goes back to Matt's point because I was thinking about this yesterday as well. Like, I would not consider a, a cornerback, an offensive lineman, or another wide receiver to be very pressing needs on this team, right? Sure. Maybe wide receiver uh, if you want to pick one of them. But Nico Reed, although he was one of the better players in Colorado last year, I don't know how much that means because Colorado was <laughs> sure. pretty, pretty bad. Um, not to say that he's he's a bad player. I'm sure he's just fine. He also recruited by Brian Michalowski, another, you know, another Oregon uh, little connection there. But it's interesting. So I wouldn't say that getting an offensive lineman or another cornerback is an ext- extremely pressing need for Oregon. So I'm wondering if Dan Lanning has, you know, slipped somewhere and is, is, uh, has, has some extra scholarships open somehow. Like maybe when we get back into fall, there's going to be a couple new assistant coaches on the staff that used to be players just a few months ago. I'm not sure. It just seems interesting that they, while they are, they're still hitting the transfer portal really hard right now, seemingly. And, you know, picking up Strother and then picking up a crystal ball from Greg Biggins for, uh, for Reed. That's pretty hard for a team that is using one scholarship now at 84 usually teams like to keep it open uh, clearly dan is not doing that so maybe nico reed is the last one but there's still zachariah franklin utsa transfer that i think a lot of people have have been naming as a potential or oregon as a potential landing spot for him um and i would that would need another scholarship and they can't go into fall camp with over 85 so i don't know i, I agree with you matt i've been kind of wondering like do we do we not know something here? Well, that's that's yeah. actually why I posed the question was because I was going, okay, Strother gets you. I thought it was to eighty four. Read if there's a crystal ball from Greg Biggins. We'll I'm just like, I'm just going yeah. like that's that's basically happening. So that gets you to eighty five. I'm going, what am I missing here? Because it because Franklin's name being out there to me is so enticing that I just don't understand how that isn't somebody that you go all in on. And if you don't have a scholarship for him, you aren't allowed to go all in on him because then you're pitching him on a walk-on situation, which he's not taking. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Some smells a little weird, Matt. I kind of agree with your your point there. There's something amiss here. We'll see. Maybe And maybe it'll be nothing, but it also could be very much like, hey, there could be a guy who grad transfers or Jared's point medically retires or something. I mean, and just because we're going down a conspiracy theory here a little bit, um, you know, to provide some, I guess, more fuel to that. I would look to the three positions that they've added, guys. True. Receiver, mm-hmm. offensive line, or corner, um, or DB. If 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 Nico Reed does happen, which, like you said, Eric, if, if Greg Biggins is going to throw a crystal ball in, it's basically going to happen. Um, that's how good his track record is. I would look to the you know the DB room. I would look to the offensive line, and I would look to the receiver room and say, "There's something here that we don't know about because they wouldn't add these guys just to add them." Because, like Jared said, these are three positions that they've got a lot of depth. That they, you know, these there are other needs that could have been filled. So they know something. What I don't know what the, we that's what we have to figure out. That's I guess that's what our jobs are. Figure Ooh. out what what the staff knows. <laughs> we are yeah we're 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 Sherlock Holmes over here. This is exciting. Yes. All right. That's going to do it for us here on this Autzen Audible's podcast. Uh, thank you for listening to the show. We'll be back later this week with another edition talking Oregon Ducks. I'm sure it's going to be some more fallout from an Oregon recruiting standpoint from a football perspective. 
But until then, you've been listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Talk to you later, folks. Peace.